We're in Hebrews chapter 6. It's Hebrews, James, Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So we're in Hebrews chapter 6, and one of the things that you'll see this morning, find myself saying it every week, almost every week, that if you miss Sunday school, you're missing sort of an intro into the sermon, and uh, today is is no different, but I want to as well keep our place in the Songs of Sovereign Grace from the reading this morning from our catechism questions because we hit on a, a particular uh, a note that will resound throughout what we read this morning, and that is on page 91. And then as we were singing in the hymns on hymn number 401, again, there was... Uh, some rich theology as to what we what we heard, and it will do well to resound the message from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 this morning. I want to begin first uh, by reading verses 9 through 12 in Hebrews chapter 6 so that we are reminded of the context of the passage. It says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we're just so thankful for your word. God, that we know that it is true, that it testifies only of uh, one man, and that be Jesus Christ. Lord, we may see sinful man uh, in the text, Lord, and that is only to illustrate to us how wonderful and how perfect our Savior is. And this morning it is our prayer that you will reveal the biblical Christ to us in Scripture, or that we may dwell with him in eternity. But, Lord, while we are on earth, that he may dwell with us, Lord, that he would change us uh, from the inside out, Lord, that there would be conformity to his person and to his righteousness. Lord, and for that, that there will be worship unto you. And we ask this day, God, that uh, you would enlighten us truly with all of the heavenly blessings and spiritual discernment of your word, that we may understand what it is that you've written for us, God, that it would uh, prove truly to, to be uh, a, a reproof and a correction, Lord, in doctrine that would be sweet unto our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. start by reading again the title uh, of the, the hymn that we just sang 
the church is one foundation. The church is one foundation. The initial line says, is Jesus Christ her Lord? It's interesting that the man who penned those words would do so, not realizing the impact that it may have upon the church years into the future. And unfortunately, many churches, professing churches, do not, in fact, have that one foundation being Jesus Christ. There may be all sorts of foundations laid by men and all sorts of things that would turn us aside. And that is really what Hebrews chapter 6 has been describing in, in some degree, that the church has erred from her way, or those at least who are professing to be the church, who are claiming to have been saved by Christ. And what we have seen in the past few weeks is the danger of not progressing. What is the danger of progressing? It's not that you have attained to some status, but haven't moved from there. And in fact, the danger of not progressing is the danger of never truly knowing. And that is the emphasis from uh, that is given in the first few verses of chapter 6 that is detailed when it says they were once enlightened and that they were partakers and that they had seen and that they had uh, been engaged in certain things that, uh, of course, the Spirit was present in, but it does not, in fact, implicate them in salvation. And that is truly the issue as we read the text this morning. I want to begin again with verse 11 and read it to you. It says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Short sentence, and it serves as uh, it serves as a, an inspiration to those who have been uh, charged by God to receive the gospel, to know the gospel, and there again to preach the gospel. But also, it is an indictment to those who have not fully understood. It is an indictment to those who have had the gospel, who have heard the gospel, who have seen the power of the gospel, yet choose to trample or choose to run from it. And I believe the church would do well, both the professing and the true church, to understand that this could be either one, either an indictment or an inspiration. Maybe for some it is both. And that would be, uh, beloved, a wonderful thing to realize this morning as we see what the the penman has to say under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First, he begins with those uh, those words in verse 9, but beloved. He's not writing to some audience with whom he is not familiar. Uh, and even if he was, what a great degree of love does this man have that he would call even those whom he does not know because they belong to the Savior, beloved. I want us to understand that because there is a particular perspective that we should draw from that. That the church, though we may not, though we may not know that person, uh, as we may know some here, if we are gathered with true believers, there should be uh, a lovingness towards them that we too would write them concerning and call them the beloved of, of Christ. Why would we do that? Because if they are special, so special unto God that He would save them by the blood of His own Son should we not as well have that same attitude? Now, the building block that is there that would have us to love one another that way is built even more upon, th this is 
beginning of that foundation of Christ that we read in the hymn this morning and it's building upon the apostles and prophets just as he said because here is an apostle uh, presumptuously who has written or at least a disciple of Christ who is professing the word of God and in that he is detailing the love that he has for the brethren. We have also a shift in perspective from the first eight verses. In the first eight verses, uh, we see that there is being described a needing to press on, uh, something that we've talked about over the past five or six weeks or more. There's a needing to press on into maturity. What does that mean? It means that we should not stay the way that we are. If, if you indeed find yourself in a position in which you are the same today as the day that you were saved, you might not have been saved. If you have no changes, if the Lord has not truly come in, then there will be no changes. And the, and the reality of that is that there is a, a peace and a solace with being able to tell yourself that you may not have been saved because the reality is that Christ is that saving Savior. He is the, the reality. He is the guarantee in salvation. And to now truly trust in Him and to be willing to admit that maybe we never have, it is wonderful in fact so should the argument that is being brought forth in chapter 6 of hebrews the perspective of course being that we need to move to maturity rather than the other uh the other implication that is to fall away we can either move on or fall away there is no in between there is no middle ground with christ there is even either moving on to maturity or there is either falling away taking for granted, trampling that good news, casting it aside for the desire of the flesh. Here is uh, the truth about that falling away. It is a belief possibly to some extent as it is being described here because they have joined the church. They have been part of this gathering, but it is void of repentance. Why do I say that? Because even good church members need to be reminded of repentance. The actual, the actual reminder that we had here, and if you were able to stay last week for the second service, we talked uh, about repentance and how necessary it is and how it's not a one-time thing, but it's a constantly perceiving of the righteousness of Christ and therefore being in a, in a practice of repenting from those things that fall short of the glory of God, those sinful acts that are transgressions against God. So what we see in the first eight verses is either a need to press on to maturity or the fact that we have indeed fallen away because we have not repentant hearts. Faith is uh, described in two ways in the Bible. It is either saving faith or it is unrepentant faith, something that is very damaging to one. On one hand, we have saving faith that brings great joy and shall into eternity. On the other hand, uh, unsaving faith and re repentless faith is that which seems to be a guarantee. It's that which we hold fast to in the flesh but is not profitable for the Spirit. In fact, it is a, a, a form of self-deceit. And so when we look at verses 9 through 12, we have a shift of perspective from falling away and from needing to press on to maturity to seeing how Christ may fulfill that. The, the declaration in verses 9 to 12 is a, is a declaration that there is an extension of grace 
to the beloved of God. So the penman describes them, but beloved, who by God's mercy are now recipients of what kind of love but everlasting love? Ask yourself this question. You have family members, sisters and brothers and children. What kind of love do you have for those people? Those are the people whom you undoubtedly love the most, more so even than your neighbor. Do you have everlasting love? Or do you have a temporal love that in the sense that as long as things are going your way, you're expressing that love and they know that you love them. But at the moment that there is a difference, everlasting love shines brighter because it de declares how much so we love someone. How much so do we love our brother or sister when they're angry with us or we're angry with them maybe? Maybe we're not happy with what's going on. Do they still know that we love them? The case is true with Christ because we are sinners constantly testing the love of God. And it proves that it is indeed an everlasting love. And so the purpose of verses 9 to 12 is to declare that extension of grace, this recipients of everlasting love, to describe the favor of God to only those who belong to him, the favor that is uh, into eternity, the favor that does not fall away at any time, that is never removed, the mercy of God that is likewise the same. And then the grace of salvation. All of these uh, are, are really summed up in these verses. And as we look at verses 11 and possibly 12 today, that they're summarized and really tied up together and that salvation is present, and because of that, perseverance is given us by the Lord. We have an obligation to see the sovereignty of God even in perseverance because we cannot continue with God. How, how can I say that? We cannot persevere without God because simply we cannot exist without God. If the, the truth is in the Bible, if the truth is in the Word of God, that He is the beginning and the end, if He is the creator of all things that we've seen in Hebrews and elsewhere throughout the entirety of Scripture, if He has caused all of existence to exist, then doesn't it stand to reason that He continues to preserve it, that He causes it to continue? Likewise, for the Christian, how much so is it true that we acknowledge that God is the only reason and Christ is the only means by which we may persevere? This is the favor, the mercy, the everlasting love of Christ Jesus to those who are his beloved. Listen, when, when it says, but beloved there, this is not a broad term that is for everyone. This is not a broad term that applies uh, to the unbeliever, he's talking about those who are guaranteed everlasting life. And what's so important about that is that not that they're guaranteed everlasting life, but they have partaken in the saving blood of the Savior. It has been applied, and it is a permanent application. There is no graffiti that can mark it. There is nothing that can take away or distract from it. It doesn't weather over time. The truth about the blood of Christ is that it is everlasting just as the Savior. It's ever potent. The text says, and we desire. The we here is a very complex we, I believe. I believe that believers should be quite intrigued by the word we. It seems 
up until this point that at times one person is addressing the church of Christ. And now here it says, and we, and we can look at the, the, the Greek language and we can summarize from it what may have indeed uh, been the perspective and the we who is spoken of. But I would say to you that any understanding that we have goes way beyond what an earthly language can declare. I say that because this, I want to bring this point to you. When it says we desire, we ask the question, who in fact is it that desires this? Who is that we? And I believe that the word we here illustrates the, the three-step model that we see of the gospel that we've uh, spoken of so many times in the past year, whereas by we first hear and see Christ the Savior, that is what the gospel does. We cannot be saved by the message of Jesus Christ unless we first see Christ. Listen, we don't have any trouble seeing ourselves. We have trouble seeing ourselves as we truly are, but we do not have trouble seeing ourselves. The, the threefold model here is that we see Christ first. And then, because we see how wonderful Jesus is, we begin to say, hey, you know what? That Tim ain't so great anymore. That Pat ain't so great. That Charlie, he's not so good. Not as good as I once thought. And then what does it cause us to do but to look again to Christ and say, that is what I need. He is all I need. And so the three-step model of the gospel exists that we see the cross, then we see ourselves, and we immediately turn to Christ and never to turn back again. How does that work into the we? Well, I believe that the we begins with God. It must begin with God, the triune God of the Bible. When he says, and we desire here, I believe he first means that God desires. Now you say, now the meaning of we is starting to make sense. We're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We desire. I believe the we begins with God and that it, it is detailing that God desires that we do the thing that is to follow. What does it say? That we desire each one of you show the same diligence. What, does, what is being said when it says we here? It's saying that God is desiring something of his beloved. And not only is he desiring it, but he is requiring it. And beyond requiring, he is enabling it to be fulfilled. How can that be? Well, we have one answer, Christ. Anything can only be said through Christ, as Hebrews chapter 1 declares, and it can only be done through Christ. It can only be done for Christ, and it can be only be done for the glory of God. So the we begins with God, and it's that we would admit and submit to his authority that we would be diligent, and thereby we would experience the joy and the fullness of the assurance of this hope that is declared uh, in the latter part of the verse. For what exists or thrives or yet even ceases unless it is willed by God. Ask yourselves, what exists without God? What thrives without God? What ceases to exist without God? The we must declare God's will. The we must be a a representation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are willed by the three persons in one. And what execution 
may there be? What execution may such desires have on earth apart from the only begotten? What can they have apart from Christ? How can we execute these desires? Well, the answer is we cannot. We must, again, the second part, look to ourselves and see the depraved nature. Only the Spirit of Christ may apply what the begotten Son of God has declared that we must do to keep His commands, to work for His kingdom, for the King. So first I contend that this expressed desire in the opening portion of verse 11 may not come unless it first come, unless it first be desired by God in three persons. No man who has ever took his pen and written it to parchment, what God has declared, has done so apart from supernatural revelation, apart from God speaking through Christ. These words could not have been written unless this desire was first inherent of God. Secondly, it must also be the desire of we who are concerned for the Father's business. That is, we who are at work within the church for the glory of God. So when he says, uh, verse 11, and we desire, he's saying, listen, there is a union here that is speaking of the triune God, and now there is a we here who is speaking of those beloved saints of God who have gone to maturity, who have left these elementary principles, who have gone beyond simple profession and have begun to dig deep into the Word of God to find the will of God in every situation. So secondly, it is us, the church, who must be concerned. Us, that must be looking for this desire to be done, not simply on our behalf, but on behalf of our fellow believers, that God would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted. This is to suggest that as true ministers, like those mentioned in the previous verses, it says, uh, you have shown love toward his name and work, and it says, and ministered and are still ministering to the saints. Likewise, uh, this is to suggest that us as true ministers, us members of the church, us beloved of Christ, the saints of God, must as well desire this proposed diligence in works of righteousness. It's a desire of God. It's a desire of Christians. We should desire that other Christians do as this is saying. We should have a, a love. We shouldn't be satisfied if we simply seem to be on the right track, but we should want our brother to be as well. We should want our sister. The elder, it is saying, must be concerned. The deacon must be concerned. The choir member must be concerned. The new convert must be concerned. The person cleaning the restroom or cutting the grass, they must be concerned. With what? Spiritual matters. With souls saying all the children of God we must desire that you who belong to the Lord desire and show diligence as it says and the outcome be this assurance of hope till the end all who belong to the must all who belong to the Lord must desire to see heavenly focus behalf of the church not numbers not offerings 
not outpourings of crowds of people present on Sunday, but we must be focused on seeing heavenly results within the church. We must focus and must be desiring the exaltation of Christ through the word and through the preaching of the gospel. Listen, if the gospel does not produce everlasting results, it is not the gospel. Amen. Do you understand that even to the unbeliever, the gospel presents everlasting results? Condemnation on one hand, fire and brimstone, the truth of hell, or for those who believe, it produces everlasting life. Why do we not desire these things? Why is the church being instructed at this point to be reminded and being uh, being told once and time and time again, desire these, each one of you, to be diligent because it is very easy to fall off the wagon. It's very easy. You know, I believe that there is a simplistic uh, part of being a member of the church and a faithful member. Listen, being here every Sunday doesn't guarantee salvation doesn't guarantee even sanctification but it does do one thing it creates a habit it creates a habit what is sin but a habit and what is everlasting life but a habit of righteousness the church is very important and so is membership in the church and we should see that particular perspective we should see that and we should desire that the mark of true love when it says we here we desire talking about god talking about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, talking about the rest of us saints when it says we here, the true mark here is love and concern for the soul. Not for your power bills. Not for your meals. Not for any other need that may arise. Not because you want somebody to visit in the hospital when you're sick. Listen, the concern must be for the soul. Jesus didn't save people so he could bless them with temporal things. In fact, I believe that Jesus blesses with temporal things so that we may continue to exist until we repent. And then it pleases God to do those things even afterwards until we meet the Savior face to face. Thirdly, and lastly, the word we comes full circle. Remember I said that it represents the gospel, that we see Christ, ourselves, and then Christ again. Well, here it comes again full circle in that if man is to collectively as a group uh, that we define by we if we the church are to have this desire then such an ambition can only come from the transforming power of the gospel of jesus christ that means that it must be speaking of god and then it must be speaking of man but we're saying man can't even say we here unless he is existing and striving with christ unless what Christ said is true, lo, I am with you always. There is the evidence. It's not what man can do, but it's what God is doing and will do until he returns. This is the transforming power of the gospel that he truly has created a clean heart in us. What he's saying here is when we desire, uh, whoever penned it was probably thinking, we desire, us men desire that you do these things and that you continue to minister and that you show diligence why do we do that because this is what the lord wants and he's saying church we can't even want this unless we have the lord 
you'll have no desire for these things. The natural man has no desire for heavenly things. That is a, a basis by which we must conform to the gospel of Christ and to the person of. Because we know we are no longer in the same state. But we have been truly changed, made anew as we read in Corinthians. He's created a clean heart and we are being conformed to his image and not by physical characteristics or standard, but we are being transformed into the image of Christ through love and righteousness. Listen, you don't look like Jesus just because you do something nice for somebody. I'm sick of the world perverting what Christian look like just because of what they do rather than what they speak and how they live listen anybody can do something good for someone or what is seemingly good but what good is a mission trip without the gospel it is no mission at all what good is evangelism if it's simply giving someone food or water and yet denying them the bread of life here the the truth is is resounded here that we are being conformed to an image not by physical standards but first by spiritual standards love and righteousness this is the basis for this determination this determination may be found if we simply turn to matthew chapter 6 This is not a suggestion. This is not a helpful hint. But it says in verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Instead, pray this way. So don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 8, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen the basis of this determination that we are being transformed into Jesus's righteousness not by some physical likeness of Christ in which he took on the likeness of man but we're talking about us looking like Christ spiritually consider what he said in the prayer our father who is in heaven hallowed be your name here's the beloved of God speaking to the father who is in heaven your kingdom come, your will be done. What is the desire here in chapter 6, verse 11? We desire this diligence. This desire is to do the work of God that his kingdom come and that his will be done. Not man's, not mine, not yours. Where is it to be done? It says on earth as it is in heaven. How is it to be done? Give us this day our daily bread. It cannot be done apart from Christ. The whole message of Hebrews chapter 6 is that you have professed to believe in Christ and you are falling away because you do not trust in Christ. How is that? Because you have not partaken of your daily bread. 
you have not partaken truly of the bread of life. You are not subsisting and living on that bread. Indeed, you have not come to drink from the well from which you will never thirst again. The message, Hebrews chapter 6, is detailing for us what it is to believe in Christ and to trust in Christ and be convinced and be standing firm in works of righteousness because that is where our Savior is. He's not off in some sinful land other than to save his people. But Christ is righteousness. We must determine that these eternal paths are the ones that we must take. Ultimately, Jesus is teaching us to pray and teaching us to do nothing other than to desire eternal things. Ultimately, that God would be glorified in all of this. This is his method this is his means this is the outcome that god will be glorified how does he do that by teaching us to pray because he's teaching us to pray and to desire the eternal things of god and to do the work of god for the glory of god this is what the hebrew people had problems with and let me tell you this is what every man apart from christ is having trouble with he cannot serve man and manna cannot serve the flesh and serve god so in summary the word we here is a contending of the spirit of the triune God within man that he too, this man, may no longer simply be concerned with self, but that he may care for others and find joy and solace in salvation that is made evident by these things that accompany it. That's what it said in the previous verse, these things that accompany salvation, verse 9. How and when may he do this? From life to death and from death to everlasting life. There is the call upon the saved sinner to progress from death to life, life to death, death to everlasting life. There is what Christ is doing. And the desire here is that God's will be done. Not that you be satisfied. Not that things be done the way that you want them. And listen, all of us have that problem. We all like things done the way we like to do them. I received a job one time, a brother Charlie, because the previous guy didn't do things the way he liked it. We all have that nature. We all have that desire. But within the church, Hebrews chapter 6 is declaring that God's will must be done and God's will is that everyone take part. Every member use the gifts that he has given to glorify the risen God. To exalt the Son. We're to have a like mind that is only akin to Christ. The desire here, as it says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. This desire is a revelation that we are in line with what God has called us to do. A desire to do the will and the work of God. To find satisfaction in heavenly things rather than the earthly temporal things which we once enjoyed. Colossians chapter 2 verse 2 says, 
that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Which is Christ. It says, we desire each one of you. This is the point in which many may start to fall asleep or many may begin to tune me out, but I would think that if you've made it this far, the next portion is just as crucial. Every one of you who is exempt, each and every member who is the church is being called here. Each and every one who belongs to Christ. Wh which are those? Well, these are the none who are to be lost, the none who are to be cast out. This is the entire family of God when it says we desire that each one of you, we desire all of you who are saved, we desire all, desire all of you who are righteous now by the blood of Christ and by the righteousness imputed to him. We are desiring all who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are desiring all who are the elect of God, all who are the predestined of God, all who are in John chapter 1 are those who received, all those who are grafted in, all those who are adopted, just in case anybody was looking for an exemption there. That should cover every basis. All of you, church. Doesn't this sound a whole lot like a good shepherd? Not losing one. This cannot be a, a hireling here. In fact, this is one who is not willing that any should perish. Tells us a lot about that we. That it be speaking of God, speaking of God's people, and then reminding us that God's people couldn't even wish these things or pray these things apart from Christ. We desire that every single one do what? It says, show the same diligence. The same diligence that is revealed in verse 10. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. You can bet at that point there were some people in the church that thought, man, this sounds good, except for, hold on, this was only for those who were ministering. That would leave some folks out in some churches, right? That's why I said we desire that all of you, each one of you, show this very same diligence. The diligence that says we will not simply talk about Christ, but we will walk with Christ. Not simply talk about righteousness, but practice righteousness. Not simply talk about sin, but war with sin. Not simply talk about salvation but to live in it not simply talk about a risen savior but to love a risen savior not to simply talk about working being part uh, of a kingdom of heaven but cherishing that kingdom and working diligently as it says diligently to see that God's will is being done to continually prove that the labor for the church is now this is our six days 
and the rest is in Christ to come, like we saw a few chapters back. The rest is in Christ. This is our time to labor. We desire that each one of you be diligent until the coming of the Lord, until the passing of this earthly body. What does that mean? It means you don't have time to wait to serve. We aren't afford, uh, afforded the luxury of waiting until the last days of our life and then maybe doing a few things hoping that we'll be saved. That is not what the text is declaring. It's saying if you are saved, you will work. Think about this. We love to say this. Hey, if you don't work, you don't eat, right? Christ is saying if you're not working, you haven't eaten. You haven't partaken of this daily bread. The evidence is there that if you are working, then you must have been fully sustained by the person of Christ. His body is represented in the bread at which we take in communion. His body is what is sustaining and driving and motivating you to continue to work for the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to cut some of my notes short. Press on. It says, each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So as to realize, so as to take part, so that you'll actually see about it and not just hear about it. Because unfortunately, that's what will happen. Some will talk about it all of this side of the everlasting life, which either be in heaven or the everlasting torment in hell, and they'll talk about the church, they'll talk about the kingdom, but they won't realize it. They'll find that they will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. What is the Bible declaring in Hebrews chapter 6? It's declaring that you are working, and you're either working for one of two teams. You're either working in iniquity against God, or you're working the works of righteousness for Christ. It's as simple as that. That we're desiring diligence to realize something, to have, to take possession of, to have and to hold, just like we say in marriage, from this day forward. You don't think that God declares something like that in marriage and it's not true in eternity, do you? That it is from this day forward when you truly partake of the blood of Christ, when it is truly applied to you, when you truly believe and repent and continue in that lifestyle and you're devoted and you're putting off sin and you are being changed by the word and the person of Christ, then it is from this day forward. There will be no looking back as with Lot's wife. They'll be only looking to Christ, and it says you'll realize what? The full assurance of hope until the end. What does that tell anybody who can read this passage? Well, it tells us two things that really uh, work together. One, it tells us that there is no sinless perfection this side of heaven for, for, for mankind, for mere mankind. Why? Because every time you read this, it says you may realize the full assurance of hope. Each day that you live, you will be more and more and more fully assured if you are walking with Christ. If you are truly a Christian, you'll know more tomorrow and you'll 
bank more and you'll rest more on the promises of God in Christ tomorrow than you have today. It says here, you'll realize a full assurance of hope. Souls will be guaranteed the hope that is in Christ. They will be setting their course and their direction based on what Christ is doing in this assurance. They will be pressing on towards the mark like a ship with its sails, waiting for the wind. And what is the wind? Not every wind of doctrine, but the truth of Jesus Christ moving us. A vessel, the Bible says, of honor. And what will it be doing? None other than revealing the truth of God's Word that we'll see as we have throughout the entirety of Scripture that God's Word has not failed, that the promises are being kept, that uh, those things prophesied are being fulfilled and have been fulfilled, and salvation has been obtained. There remains not another sacrifice. And what, what the Bible is declaring here is that if you are showing this same diligence and you're working and you're persevering, it's not you, but it's Christ that is in you. And if this is indeed happening, then doubt will fly. And where doubt is cast out, certainty is replaced. An assurance of hope. There'll be less unsettling. And there'll be more knowing and waiting eagerly for the sun to return. This brings us to a particular point of salvation that we must come to understand. Not everyone is as assured about salvation as the next portion, the next person, excuse me. But what is guaranteed is that as we continue to walk, we may be reminded and we may be filled with the joy of knowing each day more and more that the promises of God are true. That uncertainty will at some point cease to exist. That you can be sure, the Bible says. How can you be sure? Well, you won't know unless you're familiar with the Word. What does it mean to be familiar with the Word if you're not working and walking with Christ? Here's the deal. Do you want to know for sure? Walk with Christ. I can be sure today because I know what Christ has done, and it doesn't mean that Christ is just now proving Himself. Listen, the truth is this. If you believe a person to be friendly and you start to get to know them, right? You think, hey, I think this is a good person. I want to be friends with them. And your friends... Five years, 10 years, 20 years. Well, guess what? You're becoming more and more sure of what kind of friend this person is, right? They haven't changed from the first year to the 25th year. You're just now understanding, and that is the truth with God. He is certainly going to save his people. He is certainly going to redeem his people. What the Bible is telling you is the longer that you walk with him, the more sure you'll be about it. You're just getting to know him. He is who He is. He is who He says He is. He is who the Word says He is. He is who God says He is. The first chapter of Hebrews. And He is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our exaltation. He's worthy of, of betting on, for instance. I won't, don't even like to say that. He's worthy of putting all of our trust in. Because when you're 
putting all your trust in Christ, it is not a bet, it's a guarantee. And you can't do that unless he has taken up residence. And here's what it's saying. It says that there is a full assurance of hope. Listen, there's no hope outside of the hope in Christ that can be fully assured. And fully insured, I may say, because he bought it with his precious blood. You can't lose. That's what the Bible is declaring. With Christ, you cannot lose. Full assurance to the end. Again, speaking about perseverance. Being guaranteed that, that doubt will diminish over time the longer that you walk with Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll go ahead and say it because it might be six months before we get there and you won't remember it. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what Christ is doing. Christ is not just simply looking for you to say, oh, I believe in Jesus and stop there. Listen, everyone will say that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question today is, will you confess this side of life? Will you confess now and will you place your trust in Christ? Romans 4, 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Notice it says was able because he did perform. This is what the assurance looks like. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Again, another declaration that we see here in Hebrews chapter 6. What is the Christian to do? He's to confess. He's to repent. He's to believe. He's to trust. He's to continually to repent. He's to work righteous works for the kingdom of God. When? Until his ministry is done. When is his ministry done? When he sees the Savior face to face. Today is the day of labor. It also says in chapter 4, verse 17, just sometime after that, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me so that through me, the message might be proclaimed to all the Gentiles and that they might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Why is God doing for his people today so that the message might be fully proclaimed? It's as simple as that. It's not about jewels and crowns. All those, those things seem very wonderful. It's so that the message will be proclaimed so that Christ will be exalted so that God would be glorified. And that is hope until the end. A sure hope that Christ is to return, that a Christian may be diligent and continue to the end. That is our hope that we can continue because he reigns. We sing the song, because he lives. There is the basis of our hope, because he lives. I want to take you back. Question we have this morning. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king by bringing us into submission 
to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. There is perseverance. Perseverance is defined by Christ executing his office as a king. Let us pray. Father God, as we come to you, Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we just ask that you would use it to change our hearts, Lord, that you would draw us nearer unto thee, Lord, that we may be sure of salvation, God. And if we are not, may we quickly confess. May we earnestly then begin to contend for the faith. Lord, we ask that you would bring good works, Lord, and evidence salvation into our lives that others may know us Lord and that we may continue to hope and persevere and press toward the mark God that you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted Lord we just thank you for this assembly thank you for each and every member Lord and the responsibilities that you have given us Lord the love that we have for one another God may we be most importantly concerned for one another's souls Lord, that we would not allow uh, each other to fall into sin without uh, even the hand uh, of the redeemed of the Lord being there to snatch us from the fire. Lord, may we love one another. May we teach one another. May we grow together in faith. Lord, may we uh, graze in the same green pastures of your word. Lord, we just ask that you would Bring your blessings upon it, Lord, and as well for the meal that we're about to receive, Lord, we praise you for it. We thank you for all of your provision. We know, Lord, that not even the grass that has uh, fed those things that have provided the meat would would grow up, Lord, without your command, without your word, without the promises that you have made, Lord. You're the, the guarantee this side of heaven, Lord, and the next, Lord. Nothing exists without you, and we come to acknowledge that, God, and we just thank you for it today. In Jesus' name we pray.